Hello, is this on? <laughs> um, hi, my name is Corrine. Um, I'm a connection group leader here. Uh, and our scripture tonight is 1 Peter 3, verses 8 through 22. So if you want to turn there with me. It reads, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? For even as you, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ as the Lord, as holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile you, your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this now, saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, um, who has gone into the heavens and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been, been subjected to him. Let's pray together. Um, Lord, I just want to thank you for being so faithful in your love for us this semester. And yeah, just for bringing us together in community and just being able to hear from your word. Um, yeah, and I yeah, just pray um, for everyone in the room just who's feeling weary at this point in the semester that um, yeah, you would show, show us that how to have joy, um, how to have um, just endurance and uh, perseverance and yeah, just to remain faithful for you in this time. I just pray over David and I thank you for his willingness to teach your word. And yeah, just that your will would be done tonight, um, that you would strengthen him. And yeah, we are just so excited to learn more about who you are and your word. Um, yeah, and I just thank you for what a, a privilege it is to be here. Um, yeah, and I just give all these things to you, to you and in Christ's name, amen. Thanks. So my name is David, as Ronnie mentioned earlier. Um, yeah, so you've already pulled out your Bible. Hopefully we're reading along with, with Kareem, but I, we're going we're gonna to open it up in a second. Um, but this, 
Guys, guys, what is this? What is this? This is a joke, okay? This is a joke. Our church is not actually called that. Um, but real quick, we're not calling it that, okay? Yeah, praise the Lord. We can all praise the Lord together, okay? That's a joke. We're not actually, we're not uh, that, um, <laughs> we don't have that lack of self-awareness that we'd actually do that. So, but anyway, the thing we were laughing about was we were like, okay, when we put this up, it's going to be so obviously stupid from the beginning that everyone will be like, oh, ha, ha, ha. But we were like, what if we actually could just like play it, like just keep going with it for minutes and minutes and minutes and then like sit down, sing songs. So real quick, did anyone like at the beginning, you were like, this is dumb, obviously this is a joke. And then like two minutes in, we're like, oh, crap, They're, they might be serious about this. Rod, some people, yeah, okay. Anyway, yeah, April Fools, all right, there you go. You can thank Sam for like spending like 30 minutes making that video and logo and everything. All right. All right, ready? Verse eight, read this with me. First Peter three, verse eight. It says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind, did not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, what? Bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. So what he's, what he's doing is he's, he's summarizing like really the last four weeks for us, right? We kind of started off and it was like, man, okay, you're in this situation where you're a citizen and you have this government. How do you live like a Jesus follower in that situation. Well, what if you're like a bond servant, you have a master? How do you do that? Or what if you're a wife and you have a husband? Or what if you're a husband, you have a wife? And he's basically just kind of, kind of funneling down and he just pulls out big and he goes, here's what I'm talking about. Because of Jesus Christ, because he's joined himself to you and he's actually given you these like very great and precious promises because he's actually given you this, this kind of unshakable hope. What I'm telling you to do as a Christian, I'm telling you to live this kind of life <clears throat> where you actually bless other people. Like, that's what you're called to do. Like, you are called as a Christian to actually have this life, not where you try to go out and seek to find a blessing in the world, but actually because Christ Jesus has already blessed you, you actually then give freely of your life to other people. And then in verse 12, he says, this is, this is why you do this. Verse 12, 4, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ear is open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So he's saying, okay, the reason you do this is because God's eyes see people like that. He listens to people like that. Those are the kind of people God blesses. But then he says this, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for doing good, right? Like if God's on your team, who is possibly going to harm you? But then he says this, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, meaning like that still could happen, it probably still will happen, even if you suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Therefore, have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So this line, real quick, we're going we're gonna to get into the end of this text. We're going to mostly focus there, but I want to just land this line for a second. He's saying you as a Christian, one of the things you need to be ready to do at any point is to give someone a reason for the hope that's in you, Okay. Now, let me ask you a question. When you are living your normal life, how often do people walk up to you and say, hey, why do you have this kind of hope? It's pretty rare, right? It's not a normal thing. The context that's happening here is he's saying Christians are actually supposed to live in this kind of way where actually the circumstances of their life suck. They're horrible. 
Like they're experiencing suffering, like unjust suffering, they, or they have a cruel master, or they're like in this situation with the government where the government's like not treating them well. And it's like, and their posture is actually to walk through life with circumstances that are horrible, and yet to stand up tall and be like, my life is awesome. I have an unshakable hope. And he's like, if you live this way, you actually need to be able to give a reason why you're living that way. Because it's weird and it makes no sense at all. So he's saying you need to do that. A reason for the hope that is in you. And I think, honestly, kind of the, the rest of this passage at the end kind of explains what is the reason that Christians actually can have hope in the midst of suffering? And what is the reason that Christians actually can live this kind of life where you're pouring yourself out because you will experience suffering if you do that, right? I mean, that's like a definition of suffering, right? <laughs> blessing other people. Like, if you bless other people, what does that mean? It means you're the one not receiving a blessing in that exact moment, right? You're blessing someone else. And he says, now there's something happening here where when you do this, you actually will be blessed, but actually the path to blessing is going to be through suffering. And so there's this really interesting thing towards the beginning of this letter when Peter is describing the gospel, he describes it in a really interesting way. This is chapter one, and he says this. He describes the gospel like this. He says, it's the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. And if you've kind of been paying attention, right, like where every week we're kind of hitting on like the same theme, and it kind of, you're like, wait, didn't we talk about this last week and the week before that? And he's like, he's hammering this home every week because he's saying, hey, actually as a Christian, this is one of the most fundamental things you have to learn is that actually your path to the crown is through a cross. Jesus's was, and actually you as a follower of the crucified Messiah, that actually will be your path as well. And so this whole kind of idea of suffering to Christ and glories that would follow isn't just true of Jesus, but it's actually true of those who would follow after him. And so one pastor says it like this. He says, there's something in Christians that Jesus Christ puts in us that doesn't actually keep us from hardship. It doesn't keep us from hardship. So if you're in the room and you're like, I want to follow Jesus because I want to have a life free of suffering, I'm just saying, I'm sorry, but our dude was crucified. So like, <laughs> there's like other people who are on YouTube and like they'll help you get there. That's not us. Our guy was crucified. So it's not something that keeps you from suffering, but it's something that actually God puts in you so that your suffering in your life doesn't crush you or destroy you or steal your hope, but your suffering actually ends up being the very thing that actually lifts you up to glory. And that's what Christianity does, that no other religion does, that no other philosophy can do. And I want to explain why. And the reason, the way I'm going to explain it is by going to the end of this text um, and it's also the really confusing part at the end. So if you got to the end and you were like listening to her read that and you're like, what the heck? Um, welcome to Salt. That's where we're going, okay? So we're going to start in the middle. Uh, this kind of this weird part about like the spirits in prison and Noah and baptism. And maybe you read this in your connection group or on your own before and you were like, I hope they explain that because I have no idea what that means. And I would say, I also had no idea what that meant before I was studying this. Hopefully we'll explain it. And then we're going to go back to the beginning and look at Jesus' personal suffering and just like what does it actually mean to not just follow someone who was a human being, God in flesh, but to follow a Jesus who actually suffered, who really suffered. How does that change the way we think about our suffering? And then we're going to actually look at the future glory of Jesus, and we're going to talk about how the resurrection of Jesus changes everything, okay? So let's, let's read the text real quick, the very end of this, verse 18. This is kind of where he lands. So this whole thing, he's saying, here's, here's the kind of the end point of all of it. He says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, 
the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Now, in, in which, meaning in the Spirit, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while an ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Now, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, okay? I don't know if you noticed this, but I've been preaching twice in a row, and last week wasn't exactly an easy text, all right? This week's not either. This is actually funny. This is what Martin Luther, he, I don't know if you've heard of Martin Luther, he's the guy who started the whole Reformation, so like, kind of a big deal. Anyway, great Bible scholar. This is what he says about this text. It's hilarious. He says, a wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage than any other anywhere in the Bible. Therefore, I do not know for certain what Peter means at all. <laughs> And that just kind of, that's how he leaves it. So anyway, no, he actually does have some notes on this, and I think he did make a little progress, and hopefully we will too. But here's, so there's four questions, okay? Four questions. And the reason I want to even kind of sit here is because there's a ton of passages in the Bible that are like this, right? You get there and you're like, I have, this is so confusing. I have no idea what to do. And so part of my hope is not that we learn something from this, but actually you kind of see like, how do you wade through really difficult texts like this? Like, is there anything you can get out of that? And I'd say there is, but you're going to have to, Hold on tight, okay? So we're going to go. We're going to go fast, and we're going to go deep in this, and hopefully we'll get it. Four questions. Who are these spirits in prison? Two. When did Jesus go and preach to them? Three. Why in the world did he bring up Noah? That is so random, okay? Four. How is baptism have anything to do with Noah and the ark? Okay, so those four questions. So first question. Who are these spirits in prison? Um, there's been a ton of disagreement in the kind of history of church over this because it's just a confusing passage, right? And so some people look at this and they think, man, the spirits in prison, they're, they're probably like angels. And so they kind of look at some weird stuff happening in Genesis 6 and they're like, okay, there, there's probably something going on there. So these might be angels. But most people, most kind of interpreters, pastors would agree that the better interpretation is that the spirits in prison, they're human spirits, okay? So like you are not just flesh, you are like flesh and spirit, body and soul, right? You, you have an actual spirit. And so these would be the spirits of actual people that were disobedient during Noah's life, okay? So they died in the flood and they are now spirits in the prison of hell. Now, second point, when did Jesus preach to these spirits? So this is an interesting question because some people think that Jesus preached to them during the time between his death and resurrection. So there's actually like some kind of historical basis for this, right? Some people think that Jesus, when he died on the cross and was buried, that he actually like went to hell for like a few days, and then he rose again. And so some people think that Jesus preached to these spirits in prison like when he was dead. But this is actually very strange. This would be a strange thing to do, because Jesus would basically like, he would go to hell, and then he would specifically be like, hey, I'm not here for all of you. I'm just here to talk to the specific people who were alive during Noah's day, and I've come to talk to you. And it'd just be strange, okay? So that's probably not the best option. And Wayne Grudem, he is a, a New Testament scholar who's like very uh, good with Greek. And he says, here's the best way to translate this, because the Greek's tricky here. He says, in that state, meaning in kind of the spirit, he also went and preached to the spirits in prison when they were disobedient in the days of Noah. As you're saying, that's like the best way to translate it, but it's kind of confusing. So the question is, how did Jesus preach during the days of Noah? I told you this was confusing. Okay, but anyway, how did Jesus preach during the days of Noah? Well, actually, in, in, 2 Peter, in 2 Peter, Peter describes Noah as a preacher of righteousness. 
Meaning, like, Noah wasn't just the dude who built the boat. Like, Noah actually had this, like, preaching ministry going on where he was, like, proclaiming the words of God to people. He was preaching. And so in Ephesians, there's this really interesting thing where when Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus, he says, hey, remember when Christ came and preached peace to you? He says that. And it's like, well, wait a minute. Jesus never actually came and spoke in Ephesus. He never actually preached there. But what Paul is saying, he's saying, actually, when someone stands up and proclaims the gospel of Jesus, it's like Jesus is speaking through that person. And so even though I'm up here speaking, and there might be some stuff up here I say that's like not like absolutely perfect, but like when the, when the gospel goes forth, it's like Jesus himself is speaking to you. And so that's what he's saying. It's like through Noah's day, it's like even though Noah was the one speaking, it was like Jesus was actually preaching through Noah. So to summarize, Jesus was preaching through Noah to these spirits in prison when they were alive and disobedient in the days of Noah. Okay, now who, who the spirits in prison are, what time this happened, isn't necessarily unimportant, but it's not the main point. The reason he brings all of this up, okay, is he wants to talk about Noah. And he's like, there's something about Noah that's actually supposed to help suffering Christians get through it. That's the third thing. Why Noah? Well, there's a couple of reasons. The first is that in the days of Noah, just like this group of dispersed Christians he's writing to, right? Because you got to remember, like, these are like, he's written to these elect exiles. Like, they're spread out all over the place. They've lost their homes. They've lost their families. Like, they feel really alone and really isolated. Like, he's not writing to mega churches, okay? He is writing to, like, individual small groups of people that feel totally lost in the world. And so he's talking about Noah, because in that day, there was a very small group of eight people who were faithful to God, in the midst of suffering and persecution. And Genesis doesn't exactly tell us how long it took Noah to build the ark, but most kind of scholars think it probably took him about 100 years to build this thing. And during this time, about 100 years, there are eight people who are faithful to God out of the entire world. Only eight. And so I want to, before, before we keep going, I just want to stop and I just say, would you be faithful to God even if no one else in here was? Like your faith, like your walk with God, how much of that is about you and your conviction and the God you know? And how much of it is about, I have this connection group and my friends. And Jesse's a great worship leader. And this building's cool, there's trampolines. And it's kind of like easy for me to come in and be a Christian here. How much of your Christianity is about that and how much of it is like, no, I actually have a rock-solid conviction so that even if everyone else leaves Jesus, I will still follow him. One of the dangers, I think, in a place like this is because we actually want to make this invitational, right? We don't want to make it lame. We don't want to make this like you come and you're like, dude, salt sucks, but they have the gospel, so you should come, right? Like, no, we're trying to make it cool. We're trying to make it fun because we want to be a, a place where you can invite your friends. But one of the dangers of that is that sometimes you can get kind of swept up into the community. You can kind of get swept up into just like the stream, you know, and you get kind of caught up with a bunch of other people who are seriously following Jesus. But the question is like, are you actually following Jesus? Like, do you have that kind of conviction? Because there's going to come a day in your life where this crowd, even though this crowd's not huge, like this is a lot bigger than eight people. There's going to come a time where actually following Jesus is going to be really, really hard in your life. You'll have friends who walk away from following Jesus. You'll have a work environment that makes it really, really hard for you to be a Christian. And actually, in, in some ways, even harder than UW-Madison did. 
And so what he's doing is he's writing to these Christians and he's trying to remind them and he's saying, hey, listen, listen. Stay faithful to Jesus. Even if it seems like no one else is because there was a time when only eight people were right. And every single other human being on planet Earth was wrong. And so even if you get into a place where you feel totally isolated and totally lost and totally alone in following Jesus, what I am trying to tell you tonight is I am saying, keep following him. Keep following him. Because it is worth it. But the second reason Peter brings up Noah, it's a little bit harder to see, but I think when you see it, this whole passage is going to start to make sense, okay? And then we're going to get into the Greek again. I know it's annoying, but trust me, it's helpful for this passage. He says this, in, in which, he's talking about the flood, he's saying, okay, in which a few, this is verse 20, in which a few, that is eight people, were brought safely through water, okay? This word through is a super interesting word. It's the Greek word dia. Um, you don't have to write this down or even remember it, okay? But here's the point. Dia is interesting because it either can be translated from or it can be translated by. So you're reading this and you're translating, you go, either they were saved from the water because of the ark, or they were saved by the water. But what's interesting is because they're in an ark, this boat, both of those things are true at the exact same time. Because when the waters of God's judgment came down in Noah's day, everyone was swept away. They were crushed in the waters of God's judgment. But those in the ark, they were saved by being lifted up to safety by the exact same water that was crushing everyone else. They were actually saved from the water by the water. And the reason Peter is talking about this is because he's saying just like being in an ark changes the experience you have of the waters of God's judgment, actually being in Christ changes the way we experience suffering. Because in the crushing waters of pain and suffering of this world close in around you, he's saying you need to climb up into Jesus like an ark. Because if you try to face the waters of suffering and difficulty of your life on your own, you're going to be swept away. You will be crushed. You will actually be completely destroyed by that. I'm, I'm telling you, like that will happen. Like, you, you are young, and you probably have some suffering in your life, but I am telling you, you will not escape this world without tremendous suffering coming into your life. That's just true. And he's saying, if you try to deal with that on your own, you are going to be swept away. But if you hide yourself in Christ, if you obey him and be faithful to him, the sufferings and difficulties in your life, they won't destroy you, but they will actually be the very things that actually lift you up to greater glory. And Peter says that this is like what happens in baptism. Because when you get baptized, it's like in that moment, it's like you are climbing into Jesus as like an ark. And when you're lowered under the water, it's like the waters of God's judgment, they rush over you. But because you are in Christ, you aren't crushed or destroyed by God's judgment, but actually you come up from the water raised to a new life with Jesus. And this is what he says in verse 21, right? Baptism, which corresponds to this, it now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he kind of qualifies it in there, right? He's saying not as a removal of dirt from the, from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. He's saying, I don't actually mean like the physical thing you do with the water, right? Like the stuff you do, you get the water on you and it kind of cleans your body. He's like, I'm not talking about the physical thing. I'm talking about what it signifies, what it symbolizes. This appeal to God for a good conscience. He's saying that's the thing that actually saves you. It's confessing to God 
appealing to God, that you believe that Jesus on the cross was actually paying for your sins, actually your sins, that your failures were being paid for on the cross of Jesus. And you actually can now stand with a conscience clear toward God. And what he's saying is he's saying this. He's saying Jesus suffered for you so that he could be like an ark. So that as you climb up into his life, death, and resurrection, you would actually be saved and kept free from being crushed by the thing that's going to crush every single other person in your life. And you won't just be freed from that and saved by it, but actually even as the suffering in your life comes, something is going to change where that won't crush you anymore, but it will actually be the very thing God will use to push you forward to greater glory that he has planned for you. That's the first thing. And that's the middle part, and that's the confusing part. So if you're like, you've totally lost me, we have some easier verses coming. Okay, so second part. The second reason he wants to talk about this is because Jesus understands human suffering. This is so cool. Some of that stuff we just talked about was confusing, but there's nothing confusing here. These are the most beautiful verses in the Bible. There's some of the most beautiful verses in the Bible. Look at verse 18. It says this, For Christ also suffered for sins once for all the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. You know, one of the reasons that suffering causes people to walk away from the faith is sometimes pretty average people have extraordinarily horrific things happen to them. And when suffering comes to you, it can either turn you against God or it can bring you closer to him. And I don't, like, I don't know all of your stories. Like, I know, I know some of them, and I know that there's some, like, very real pain in this room from the stories you have. I know that some of you have walked through things that have been unimaginably painful. And actually, like, I, I would never be able to actually truly sympathize with what you went for, because I just, I can't get there. It's too specific of a story, and it's not mine. And I know that some of you are coming into the room and actually one of the reasons that it's actually hard for you to even be in a room where we talk about God is because so much of your life you've actually felt abandoned by him. And a lot of it is because of the suffering you've experienced in your life. And that's actually one of the things that often happens to people. Is that when suffering comes to you, you will be tempted to think that God has abandoned And you'll be tempted to think that actually your anger and your pain should be turned towards him. But one of the things that he's trying to do is he's he's trying to, in a gentle way, he's trying to just turn your eyes away from your suffering for just a moment. And he's just saying, hey, I want you to consider this other person who suffered, Jesus. And I want you to consider that actually the greatest injustice that ever happened in history, it wasn't in your story but actually took place 2,000 years ago when Jesus, the creator God in human flesh, was hung on a cross between two criminals. The righteous for the unrighteous. And he's saying that what was happening in this moment was actually Jesus Christ, the king of the universe, God himself, was actually taking on human flesh for the express purpose of being able to experience suffering for you. So that he could actually bring you to God. One of the things you have to know about Jesus, like if you're, if you're coming in here and you're trying to figure out, I don't, I don't know anything, anything about Jesus, I am so confused, who is this guy, why you talk about him, why are you singing songs about him? One of the things you have to know about Jesus is Jesus knows what it is to suffer. 
He knows it deeply. And the question is, why is this important? Why does it make a difference in your life? Well, it makes a difference because Jesus is a God who is not untouched or unmoved or distant to the pain and suffering in your life. And I don't mean that abstractly. Like, I don't mean he's not moved to pain and suffering of humanity generally. I mean in your life, your story, the wounds that you have that go deeper than anyone in this room could possibly know. Jesus is not unmoved from those things. He's not distant from those things. But in a way that no one else in this room could ever understand, Jesus actually gets that. And he actually understands. And some of you in the crowd, your story, the thing that you really feel and believe is you might not love God. Right? You might not have a relationship with God yet. And one of the reasons you don't have a relationship with God is because the pain and suffering in your life have actually coalesced together to make you believe that if there is a God, maybe there is, maybe there's not. But if there is, then it is certainly a God who doesn't care about me. Because when I cried out to him, he didn't answer. When I asked for safety, he didn't give me safety. And when I asked for a blessing, I felt like I've been cursed. And maybe you think, maybe he does actually care about me. But he could never understand me. He could never actually identify with my pain. He could never actually know me because my wounds go so deep and I am so broken. I want you to understand, Jesus is the only God who could understand you. He's actually the only being John Stott is a, an old dead guy at this point. He's, he's not here anymore. He used to be a pastor, but he, he says this, and this is one of my favorite things he ever wrote. He says this, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. And the only God I believe in is the one that Nietzsche, like Frederick Nietzsche, this famous atheist, the only God I could believe in is the one Nietzsche ridiculed as God on the cross. Because in the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? You know, I've entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries, and I've stood respectfully before the statue of the Buddha, his legs crossed, his arms folded, his eyes closed, a ghost of a smile playing around his mouth, a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world. But each time after a while, I have had to turn away. And in imagination, I have turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross. Nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty. Plunged into God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. And our suffering becomes more manageable in light of his. Hear me say this. Because I know that 
even at this point in your lives, even though we're all really young, there's some very real suffering in this room. Some really deep wounds. The Bible doesn't answer the problem of evil and pain and suffering experienced in this life with a theological proposition or some kind of philosophical argument. God answers the questions of evil and suffering and pain in your life, in your story, through the person of Jesus Christ, his son. He doesn't want to explain to you in some mathematical, theological formula why these things have happened or why things are the way they are. He just wants to show you his son who also suffered for you. And I don't know what kind of pain you face in your life. I don't know how deep your wounds are, but I know this. Jesus has scars and wounds on his body because he loves you. And for me, I have wounds in my story. And when I see Jesus, there is no one more beautiful to me than him. I mean, like, do you see that? Like, that there's actually someone who, like, his story has wounds, and those wounds came to him not because he had a bad dad or a bad upbringing or a bad relationship. Those wounds came because he loved me enough for them to be put on his body so that he could bring me to God. And this is a God who didn't see our suffering from afar, but who became every bit as human as you are and entered into your story and your suffering and ultimately was killed on a cross so that he could bring you to God. He didn't just suffer alongside of you. He suffered for you. And what he was doing was he was taking this void that you've always experienced in your life, this void between you and God, the unrighteous and the righteous. And he was saying, in this moment, what I'm going to do is in my body, my suffering, my wounds, I am going to make that void nothing. I'm going to swallow it up whole. Sins washed away, made clean, made new, so that my dad can be yours, my righteousness can be yours. And in the midst of all your hurt and pain, Jesus stands here tonight with his pierced hands wide open, and he is saying to you, come to me. He suffered for you so that he could bring you to God. Not so that you could just know some nice things about him. Not so you could just be in Salt Company and be part of this group. He suffered for you so that through a relationship with him, you could actually be brought back into relationship with God, your father. If you have not taken Jesus up on that, you've got to take it. It'll change your life. So he's saying, be faithful in the midst of suffering, because even now in Christ, your suffering is lifting you up to glory. But because you are in Christ now, you actually have a king who has also suffered for you. And this last thing he wants to talk about is the resurrection. This passage is going to be short, but I love it. This is what he says. He says, baptism, which corresponds to this, it now saves you, right? Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through what? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. The last thing Peter wants to do to kind of give you, as someone who's being called to suffer in this world, to bless other people at the cost of yourself. He's saying, this is the last thing you need to know. Jesus has risen from the dead. We're going to talk about that Sunday, and so if that's like news for you, like Jesus rose from the dead. You're like, welcome to church, okay? But here's what he's saying. 
We can walk with Jesus through pain and suffering because Jesus has been risen from the dead. And specifically what he's saying is he's saying because Jesus in his resurrection has been crowned king of the universe. Jesus is king. He's at the right hand of God. He's on the throne. And what that means is that everything has now changed. Because Jesus being crowned king means the redemption and restoration of all things. Of all things. There's a super cool moment in The Lord of the Rings. I don't think it's in the movies. Actually, I'm sure it's not in the movies, but it's in the books. And it's after, have you seen The Lord of the Rings? Anyone read it? Yeah, okay, good. If you haven't read it or seen the movies, come on, like, get, just do it. And so, I'm sorry, it's just, these things make me mad. You should do these things. Um, so there's this moment where Gandalf, right, Gandalf dies, and everyone thinks he's dead. And for like, like chapters and chapters, like for a real long time, like this like pinnacle person in the story, like their best friend is gone. And then Gandalf like comes back to life. Like he comes back and there's this moment where Samwise Gamgee is hanging out with Gandalf and he sees him. And he's having this conversation and he's saying this, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead too. Is everything sad going to come untrue? And it's like there's this moment where he's like, oh, there's so much pain and suffering in my story. And in this moment, I'm like, this moment is so good. Is everything else sad? Can it come untrue? And I don't know about you, but don't you wish that in like the deepest parts of your heart that that's true? Everything sad would just come untrue. This world wouldn't be so horrible. And so filled with evil. And your wounds wouldn't be so deep and cause so much problems in your daily life. Don't you wish that the joy that we will experience in the new heavens, the new earth, will actually make everything that we suffer here worth it? That we would actually be able to look back at everything evil in this world and actually in that final place be able to say that actually the goodness of this place overshadows all the evil of the other. That's what the resurrection of Jesus means. That's actually going to happen. Because Jesus doesn't just answer your pain by joining into the human experience alongside of us, but his life actually gains for us something even more. It gains for us this reality that actually someday, and someday soon, everything sad is going to come untrue. That is actually the hope of Christianity. That's the hope of Christianity. That's, that's, that's actually why it's good news. It's not just good news for the future. It's good news for today because this is how C.S. Lewis explains it. He says, you know, people say of some temporal suffering that no future bliss could ever make up for it. And he says, what they don't understand is that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. You see, what Lewis is saying and what the Bible is pointing to is he's saying heaven isn't consolation for your suffering. It isn't saying you who poured your life out for others and suffered, good job, here's the prize. That's not what he's saying. No, he's saying it's not consolation, it's restoration. Restoration of every single aspect of this world, but actually restoration of every single part of your story. That the joy of heaven is going to be so unshakably real 
that the king of this new world is going to be so magnificently good that even the agonies and sufferings of our story can't help but be swept up into the goodness of this place. Here's why he wants to talk about this. The reason he wants to talk about the resurrection, the restoration of all things. And the reason that we need to talk about this tonight, and I know I'm super emotional, I'm going to try to calm down. The reason we have to talk about this stuff is because in America, there is this cultural understanding this thing that's like burned deep into our psyches. That suffering is meant to be avoided at all costs. Like we gotta run from this and we gotta run the opposite direction. There's something in the fabric of America that tells us that suffering is like the worst thing that could happen to you. And what you need to do, you need to do everything in your power to run in the opposite direction of anything uncomfortable or anything painful or anything that costs you something significant. And this inclination to run away from anything discomfortable or that would cause suffering, what it ends up doing is actually leading us away from loving the kind of people Jesus wants us to love. It leads us away from the really broken parts of the world that Jesus so desperately wants to fix through you. And it leads us away from some of the people that are the hardest to love, but Jesus loves. And so what he's saying is he's saying you need to be willing to suffer to help those closest to you because Christ also suffered for you. Because Jesus is going to use those sufferings to bring you to glory. But he's saying this, learning to trust Jesus through some of these small daily interactions that you have. Like we talked about this a few weeks ago, but it's still so true. Like learning how to trust Jesus through small encounterings of sufferings we have in our lives is important. Because if you don't learn how to cling to Jesus in small instances of suffering, then you are never going to be the person that moves to Thailand and helps girls get freed from the sex trade there. You never will. Because that is going to cost so much. There's going to be so much suffering involved to do that. And so he's saying you have to learn how to do these things because if you want to make a difference in the world and you want to actually be Jesus' hands and feet in the world, you want to go out and actually make a difference, what it's going to cost you is suffering. It's the only way. It's the only way you're going to make a real difference in this world. And if you can't get through it, if it crushes you and destroys you, you can't actually make the difference Jesus wants to make in the world through you. Suffering isn't just something that happens when you get in a car accident. Suffering is what happens when you try to love the people around you. And so if we want to get our hands dirty in the work of bringing God's kingdom to bear in this world, and I know so many of you do, I know that's in your heart. You're like, I want to do this. I love Jesus. I want to make a difference. I'm telling you, you must be prepared to embrace suffering. You must not run from it. You must not shield yourself from it, but you must run full headlong into it and not say this is something that is, this is problem. This is some, why would God bring this into my life? But actually you would say, oh my gosh, Jesus is counting me worthy to live a life like him. He's kind of me worthy to suffer for the gospel on his behalf. And what Peter is saying is suffering crushes most people. It sweeps most people away. 
But for Christians, it doesn't. We can actually be these kind of people in a way that no one else in the world actually can. Suffering won't crush us. It won't sweep us away. It will actually lift us up to glory. That's what Jesus has done in that. And it's in this glory that we will meet Christ face to face. The king whose crown was made of thorns, whose hands and feet bear the cost of the new world that he is making. The Bible doesn't give a full answer as to why there's so much suffering in the world. It just doesn't. You can rifle through all the pages. It's never going to explain it to you fully. But it gives us a picture of a king who came down from his throne and suffered for his people. And a king who suffered so that when he rose from the dead, he could create a new kind of world. A world where the only bruised body is his body. A world where the only scars are his In a world where when people of that place are asked about suffering, they will say, there is only one who has suffered. There is only one who has ever tasted death. There is only one who has ever truly experienced darkness. There's only one man of sorrows. The only thing we've ever known is death. Jesus, as we think about planning churches and being missionaries or sharing the gospel with our roommates or going and changing our major to something that is less about making money for ourselves and more about making a difference in the world. God, we know that to do the right thing will cost us something and that to actually be like you in the world will lead to suffering. Jesus, I pray that you'd make us the kind of people who have resilient faith. The kind of people who've actually been made strong enough by your grace and kindness that we can weather the storms that come our way. That we would be the kind of Christians who live so differently than most of the Christians in this country. That we wouldn't run from suffering. We'd actually run towards brokenness and try to be healing because you ran towards us when we were broken and you healed us. Jesus, I'm, I'm asking you like really big prayer tonight. I just, I want that to be true of this room. So make it true, Jesus. Help us worship you tonight in your name.